So most chronic pain is probably due to some accidents or trauma or infection or disease that you got. It's just that most people heal up just fine from those incidents, and some people don't. And the pain from the original injury or the original disease state just persists long after most other people would have recovered. And so on the one hand, well, what causes chronic pain? Well, inflammation and nerve damage, you know, secondary to these sorts of insults. But on the other hand, the real question is, yeah, but why does it cause chronic pain in them when everyone else is okay? And of course, that's the thing we really don't know the answer to. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is uh, Jeffrey Mogul. He's the E.P. Taylor Chair in Pain Studies at McGill University. Uh, so we're going to talk about hypervigilance and the underlying mechanisms and genetics of pain. So, Jeff, thank you for coming. Oh, my pleasure. Nice to be here. Yeah, what's uh, what got you interested in studying pain? It's kind of a funny thing that I guess someone can make fun of. It's like, oh, you like pain, don't you? You know, you study it. Yeah, yeah. Whenever I tell people that I, you know, I was an editor at the journal Pain, they all immediately think of one thing and find it hilarious. Yeah, I got into it by accident. Thought I was interested in, uh, you know, sort of reward systems, pleasure systems in the brain. That's what I was uh, first exposed to as a scientist. And for by some accident, I found myself interviewing in a pain lab. And they offered me the job and I got a lot of off other offers as well. And it wasn't that I thought pain was more interesting than anything else. I actually, you know, liked the person I was going to be working with better. And so suddenly I was doing pain research and I rationalized it at the time as ah, pain, pleasure, it's flip side of the same coin. But uh, I'm happy I made the decision because uh, pain is not only scientifically very interesting, but it's also arguably the most important human health problem. I'm here. Any statistics on pain or chronic pain? Oh, yeah. You know, there's been a lot of epidemiological work. They all sort of converge on the same estimates, which is that uh, one out of five people is in chronic pain right now. That is defined as pain that's lasted for three months or longer. And your lifetime risk of developing chronic pain at some point in your life is almost 50%. So there are a lot of people out there in pain. The only thing that even comes close is depression and anxiety. Yeah, I've been, I had that one tore my ACL and my D like 25 years ago. Every once in a while, it flares up and it hurts really bad. So I've had problems with that and been in pain. I'm not saying it's about me, but I've experienced pain. But what I've experienced is it's um, when it's chronic like that, even for a week or so, it's debilitating. It's hard to think. It makes you irritable. It drains you physically. You feel tired a lot. It's just like a... It's a problem. So I can't imagine that so many people would be in chronic pain for months and months and months, years. Uh, frankly, I can't imagine it either. I, I mean, it's just, it's horrifying even to contemplate. And people with chronic pain, uh, it completely ruins their family life. It completely ruins their social life. It ruins their life. And uh, we're talking about a lot of people. 
So what are the main reasons people have chronic pain or some of it cryptic? Well, I mean, it's one of those answers where we kind of know the answer and we kind of don't, right? So most chronic pain is probably due to some accidents or trauma or infection or disease that you got. Um, it's just that most people heal up just fine from those uh, incidents and some people don't. And the pain from the original injury or the original disease state just persists long after most other people would have recovered. And so on the one hand, well, what causes chronic pain? Well, inflammation and nerve image, you know, secondary to these sorts of insults. But on the other hand, the real question is, yeah, but why does it cause chronic pain in them when everyone else is okay? And of course, that's the thing we really don't know the answer to. Well, what happens when someone's in pain? Um, have people put on sensors? You know, it's hard to feel what a person feels, but um, how carefully has it been characterized and what's been discovered about various kinds of pain? Well, the big problem is, is that pain is a completely subjective experience, right? And so, you know, we don't know what happens. All we can do is ask people what their symptoms are and they can tell us. And, you know, we say, how much pain are you in right now when they say seven? And we don't know what that means, right? I have no idea that your seven is the same as my seven. In fact, I'm, I can't be sure that you're capable of feeling pain. The only person in the world that I'm confident that can feel pain is me. And of course, this is an old philosophical problem. What people have been looking for in the pain field for many, many decades now is what's called a biomarker, which is some objective measurement that would say, yes, this person is definitely in pain because we see this amount of this chemical or we see this image on a, a scan. But so far, we just don't have one of those. And some people believe we never will. So pain is, you know, utterly subjective. We can measure changes and certain, you know, chemicals in your body, but none of those changes are selective to pain. So, you know, we still have a big problem. And I think that's the big reason why we haven't made a whole lot of progress in treating pain. We have this big problem that other disease states don't really have. But then you would think there would be a common physiological response, you know, like a, a chronic elevation of cortisol or adrenaline being present in high amounts, et cetera, that is there a common physiology or does that vary tremendously? You're absolutely right. You would think, and yet it's just not too. Sometimes when people in, are in pain, their blood pressure goes up and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes their heart rate goes up and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes they have a galvanic skin response and sometimes they don't. And sometimes there's cortisol release and sometimes there isn't. Any of those would-be biomarkers if they reliably went up or changed when people were in, said they were in pain, but that's just not what happens. No one's ever found anything that is usable in that way. Is there any degree of commonality amongst people? I mean, people that have certain kinds of conditions that cause pain, is there a... You know, well, the, sure. I mean, so for one thing, people tend to give the same descriptions to their pain. Right. So people that have, you know, stomach aches, abdominal pain, describe them in the same way, you know, dull and aching. And people that have certain types of, of, of pain due to nerve damage, neuropathic pain, describe electric shock sensations and heat. And, and so the, the words people use are the same, which gives us some confidence that they're having the same experience. But that's about as far as it goes. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I agree. Um, what about the... Uh... The pain tolerance scale, I would guess there's probably a lot of, uh, how to put it, urban variability. Yeah, variability. Yeah. Um, 
also just understanding what it is, how it works. Can you describe that for a bit? Sure. Uh, there are lots of different pain scales, but they're, uh, most of them are variants of the one that people think of. Uh, you know, Tell me how much pain you're in on a scale from 1 to 10. Although it's not actually 1 to 10, it's a scale from 0 to 10 because you should be allowed to have no pain. So it's actually an 11-point scale. And it's been shown that it works very well within an individual. So if you give people, you know, stimuli, let's say you're giving them the same temperature, they will tend to give you the same rating over and over again. It just doesn't work very well between people because, again, one person's three might be another person's seven. In terms of how much variability there is, there's as much variability as you can imagine. So there's one famous study from 20 or so years ago where 500 people were given exactly the same noxious stimulus. So it was... 49 degrees Celsius applied to their, you know, forearm for 20 seconds, and they had to give a rating from zero to 10, and the ratings went away from, you know, 0.5 to 9.5, and everything in between for exactly the same stimulus. So this is the kind of variability that we're trying to explain, and of course, that's what got me interested in genetics in the first place, the idea that maybe it would be genes that would explain all that uh, individual difference. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. But why not epigenetics? If someone's in pain for any length of time, I would think that there'd be a whole cascade of epigenetic marks that, that occur. Sure. That could be characterized to understand pain. A hundred percent. But do remember that at the beginning of my career, epigenetics hadn't been invented yet, right? So no, no one right. knew anything about epigenetics back then. Epigenetics, of course, is just a fancy way of saying environmental influences on gene expression. Of course, we knew that there were environmental influences on gene expression. We didn't really know how the environment affected gene expression. And of course, now we do. And we know all about the epigenetic mechanisms that apply. But back in the day, it was all about finding genes. And it still is for the most part, although there are definitely people working on epigenetics as well. Well, your current research, uh, does it encompass epigenetics and genes? Or for some reason, is there just too much to look at on the genetic side? Only. Well, no, I mean, people do both things. So, that you know, that we used to just look at DNA variants, right? So that was, you know, sort of pure genetics, the kind of variants that you're born with. And now more and more, instead of doing that, or in addition to doing that, people are doing what are called transcriptomic studies, which is looking at whether gene expression of every single gene goes up or down after some event or comparing two conditions. And of course, whether you go and you know, study the precise epigenetic modulations that are occurring is uh, is another issue. But gene expression, of course, is a very big deal. Are you able to use transcriptomics as a proxy for understanding the epigenetic changes without having to dive in too deep exactly what's going on? Not really, because the, the problem with a transcriptomics, as opposed to pure genetics, is that transcriptomics very much depends on the tissue that you're talking about. 
So when you're looking at DNA variants, well, DNA variants are DNA variants in every cell in your body, and you can get that DNA from anywhere, right? From blood or from saliva. But if you're interested in transcriptomics, then you have to be interested in, in transcriptomics of what tissue. And so most of the work that's done in humans uses blood because we can get our hands on that. And, you know, we found some interesting things from blood transcriptomics, but you might decide that what you're really interested in is what's going on in the spinal cord or what's going on in the anterior cingulate cortex or what's going on in the amygdala. And if you want to do that, you just can't do it in humans because humans are not very interested in you taking biopsies of those areas to get the tissue to get the, you know, sample to do your experiments on. So we're forced to do those studies in animals and that's great and good, but then you have potential problems with the species differences. While you were talking, I wondered, okay, you know, how much of pain is local? How much of it is diffuse? I don't know what the term is, but when people describe their pain, are there general percentages of, again, localized versus diffuse? And how does that change, you know, your ability to do anything about it or to study it? Yeah. So we refer to that as regional pain versus widespread pain. And regional pain has an annoying tendency of turning into widespread pain in some unlucky people that then, of course, are the biggest problems that, you know, the, the, that we're trying to solve. Yeah, pain tends to spread, in fact, and we really have no idea why that's happening. Of course, in some cases, you know, people have an injury to their knee and their knee hurts and then their knee heals up and everything is fine. But in some unlucky people, it starts in the knee and then later it's in the hip and in the foot. And then finally, it's all over the body. And then you have, you know, uh, what's called chronic widespread pain of which fibromyalgia is a type. And we're very, very poor at helping those people. Uh, it's much easier if the pain is localized to a single spot. Then the drugs we have, the treatments we have tend to work much better. What do you think that is? I don't know. That the more pain spreads, the more it has turned from one thing into another thing. And I think the drugs we have were designed to work against the first thing, not against the second thing. Well, does anyone know even how aspirin works or ibuprofen, let's say, to get rid of pain? But yeah, how the various pain drugs work? Okay, so uh, aspirin and ibuprofen and the other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, we know how they work real well. In brief, they work out in the periphery. That is to say where the pain is being generated, where the inflammation is, that's precisely where they're working. So in the part of the body that hurts. And we know that uh, these drugs block a particular enzyme. That enzyme would produce a chemical that's going to activate your nociceptors, which of course are required to send the pain signal up to your brain. So if you block the activation of those nociceptors, you're going to have less pain. One interesting thing is that we do not know how acetaminophen works. So that's uh, Tylenol. So as well as we know how aspirin and, you know, Motrin and Aleve, you know, we know exactly how they work, but we don't know how Tylenol works. People are still arguing about that. And for the opioids like morphine, we know how they work, but we don't know precisely where because there are opioid receptors all over your body. There are opioid receptors out in the periphery. There's opioid receptors in your spinal cord. There's opioid receptors all over your brain. And so we know how they work. We're just not quite sure where. Hmm. I guess I'll give you a couple of way out ideas and who knows if they correlate. But um, if you can't take biopsies, for instance, of certain tissues, has anyone been able to characterize like typical, if there's such a thing, typical exosomes that are released by different cell types. And maybe you could study those. Maybe they go into the bloodstream and then you could look at the condition of 
the amygdala or other parts of the body. They yeah, people are under pain. People are starting to do that. People are starting to use organoids or uh, you know organs on a chip. People are starting to use all kind of what we call reduced preparations. And again, it's very exciting that we have the ability to do this that we never did before. There are some of us that think though that when you isolate things from the rest of the body. You're preventing very critical interactions from occurring, and it is those interactions between one place and another place that might be responsible for pain, and so you might miss the critical thing. But, you know, people are all over this sort of thing, and I'm sure we're going to start to learn new things because of it. How big is the field? You know, when you're not a doctor, you have a doctorate, but you're not called a pain doctor, of which there are probably many, but there are many. what do you call those a researcher? Uh, well, I don't know that some people call me a neuroscientist or just a pain researcher. Uh, you know, I did, I did a lot of genetics, so they used to call me a geneticist. It's uh, hard to say. I, I use the term pain researcher. Um, how many of us are there? Well, there's not enough for one thing. Certainly, you know, with the scope of the problem, there should be many more. It's interesting. The United States, you know, the government is pouring money into pain research and addiction research because of the opioid crisis. And uh, one thing that they found is that it's very hard to spend all the money that Congress has appropriated because there just aren't enough pain researchers to receive that money. Uh, and so they're starting to think that we need to train a whole lot more than we have. At the big international meeting that uh, happens every two years, there's about, I don't know, 8,000 attendees. So maybe that gives you some idea into the total scope of the sort of pain research workforce. I just want to get an idea. An idea. Does, is anyone trying to see if there's a correlation between microbiome changes and pain? You know, if you have chronic pain, I would guess everything in your body would shift over time. You know, a lot of biomarkers, et cetera, maybe your microbiome would shift as well in response. So microbiomics is a huge, huge thing right now, very hypey. Um, and uh, every field is looking at what the microbiome does to what they study and pain is no exception. There's very good data that the microbiome is very involved, for example, in irritable bowel syndrome, which is maybe not too surprising, but there's also data that it might be involved in fibromyalgia. And people are working very, very hard on microbiomics uh, right now. They're fun experiments to do. They're also very expensive experiments to do because they require that you keep mice in completely germ-free conditions, which can be done, but it's it's tricky. But yeah, that's people are all over this now. Well, why can't you just stool samples from people or you know and, and you can proxies yep and you can so for example you can take stool samples from people with irritable bowel syndrome and you can then inject that into mice and uh, it increases their pain sensitivity yeah these experiments uh, do work hmm. okay so what is your research at this moment particularly asking what's it looking to figure out well i, I run a big lab so we have uh, lots of projects going on i i think you know, it's sort of three different things. One is that very, very interested and continue to be very interested in sex difference in pain because uh, we and now others have shown that the biology that underlies chronic pain development in male and female mice and rats, we're, we don't know people, but we assume. But anyway, in mice and rats, these mechanisms are completely different from each other. And this is a big surprise to people. And the reason this was missed for so long was that everyone was using male mice and male rats only. And as soon as people started using female mice and rats too, they were like, wait a minute, it works a different way in female animals. 
And so a lot of my lab is trying to figure out the female system, since we know so much about the male system in a relative sense. So we have those experiments going on. We have a lot of experiments going on in my lab that I characterize sort of as meta science. That is to say, it's not so much we're doing experiments, but we're doing experiments about how better to do experiments. And so a lot of things about finding, for example, confounds in the laboratory environment that are stressing out mice. So you get the wrong answer and how to sort of reduce those stressors. So we, we, we found a lot of sort of fun and interesting and completely unknown stressors that were around. Um, and then we have a, a third line of research all about sort of social modulation of pain. And a lot of this uh, research is done both in mice, but also in undergrads here at McGill. And we try to show that we can find the same thing in the mice and the undergrads. Oh, can we go in order? So uh, sure. what's the mechanisms for male mice versus female mice when they're under pain? What's so different about them? Well, there's lots of differences, but the one that we were involved with and the one that's gotten the most attention so far is that it turns out that in the spinal cord, which is a critical place where pain is processed, right? So the pain comes from the body, it goes to the spinal cord, and then from the spinal cord, it goes up to the brain. In the spinal cord, about 20 years ago, people showed that it wasn't just the neurons that were involved in carrying the message, which is what everyone thought forever. People started noticing that glial cells of the immune system, which uh, people used to think were just there as glue, right? Just sort of holding everything together. But people started to notice that the glial cells were actually sending chemicals and talking to the neurons and to each other as well. And the type of glial cell that got the most attention was a cell called microglia. And there were many, many studies over a decade showing the critical role of microglia. We showed in 2015 that microglia are absolutely required in male mice and rats and absolutely irrelevant in female mice and rats. The microglia just, you can kill them all and nothing changes in female mice. But yet the female mice have just as much pain as the male mice, so they must be using another cell. And the data are pointing that female mice and rats, instead of using microglia, are using something called T-cells instead. And so we're currently trying to flesh all that out and figure out exactly what the T-cells are doing. We know exactly what the microglia are doing in males. Now we're trying to find out what the T-cells are doing in females. Hmm. Okay. Um, how do the male and female rats experience pain differently? Is there any way to tell? So, no, there's no way to tell. I mean, just like I don't know if you were capable of feeling pain. I don't really know if mice are capable of feeling pain, except by their behaviors, which I measure and see how fast they would draw from certain noxious stimuli, for example. We know that overall, females are more sensitive to pain than males. Probably doesn't mean they experience anything different. It just means that they will have pain at a little bit lower levels of stimulus intensity. Or if you give the same stimulus to males and females, the females will uh, probably have a little bit more of the pain perception. But in my mind, that's not really the important part. The important part isn't how much pain the two sexes have. The important part is the fact that they're producing that pain and modulating that pain using completely different circuits going on in the background. Okay. Well, you mentioned also uh, the second area of your research that you're working on. I think that would be very important for many people working on mice. If you could reduce some of the stressors, maybe their experimentation would be cleaner and have less, you know, less side effects that can confound results. Are you planning to disseminate what you're learning to other labs, or are you just keeping in your lab for now? No, no, of course. You we could say what are what are some of the stressors? You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, we publish everything we find. The science doesn't work if people hog their ideas for themselves. Um, 
So, yeah, and it's uh, stress is particularly important for pain because it's long been known that stress can modulate pain. It's complicated, though, because sometimes stress kills pain and sometimes stress enhances pain. Depends on the parameters of the stress. But nonetheless, it's very important to identify what the stressors are. And our lab has found some interesting ones in the past few years. So uh, let's see, in 2014, I believe, we reported, and this hadn't been known before, that mice are stressed out by men. So if there are male experimenters doing the experiment, then the stress levels are higher and the pain levels are lower than if women are doing the experiment. And we figure out that that was due, it was olfactory. So it was due to chemicals that were coming out of the men's armpits. And it's not so much that mice and rats are afraid of men. What they're really afraid of is other male mice and rats. And it just turns out that men smell like male, <laughs> you know, men smell like male mice and male rats. They have the same chemicals they're throwing out. When you publish that paper, you could, it'd be so tempting to call it a mice and men. Yeah, although that's been done so many times that it's, it's sort of been taken already. But yeah, so that so that created a big splash and that was interesting. And, you know, that finding has been replicated and extended. Uh, it looks like that's a, a real thing that, again, took to 2014 for anyone to notice. We published just last year that male mice are stressed by the smell of bananas. And although that sounds absurd, it's uh, more scientific than it sounds because it turns out that what male mice are really stressed by is the presence of nearby pregnant female mice. And pregnant female mice are stressed out by males because they think the males might attack their babies and the female mice are willing to defend their babies and whether they're born or, or about to be born from those males. And so the males are worried that there might be a fight. Now the males would probably win that fight. They're bigger, but still the prospect of a fight is stressful for all concerned. So we think that's what's going on. And why bananas is that it turns out that females release in their urine when they're pregnant and when they're lactating, a chemical called n-pentylacetate. And it, that's basically meant to warn the males. And it turns out that n-pentylacetate also happens to be the chemical that makes bananas smell like bananas. So that was sort of a fun finding as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. What are some experiments you don't have resolution to that you're working on in regards to pain? Is there anything that you feel that uh, you know would be a breakthrough, even a small one that's coming? Are you getting close? Well well, I'll, I'll tease something. This is a long way away. It's uh, many years before I can prove this, but I think I have a new theory, a new hypothesis about masochism. And masochism is a, a very interesting topic for pain because, you know, the definition of pain includes the fact that pain is unpleasant. And whenever you say that definition to someone, they always say, well, wait a minute, what about masochism? And it's true if it was shown that masochists actually do not find pain unpleasant, which might be the truth. It's not clear whether it's the truth, but it might be. Then that really would upend our sort of foundational idea about what pain is. And I think that masochism might be due to a change in a particular gene rendering certain fibers to be only activated in certain circumstances versus others in a way that is compatible with masochism. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not only talking about sexual masochism. Masochism can occur in a non-sexual context as well. For example, some people like harder massages than others. And, you know, some people are interested in piercing and tattooing. There, there are examples to how pain might not be as unpleasant for some people as others. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Some people do kind of crazy stuff that uh, I wouldn't want to do. 
that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, but it'd be interesting if I could show that this is all biological. What about, uh, you said there's no biomarkers, but what about cellular activity? Are we able to look at, let's say, the mitochondria of mice? Are there certain productions of certain uh, things that are upregulated when in pain in mice or downregulated? Are you able to see any of that? I mean, there are definitely, sure, there are definitely things that are upregulated and downregulated. The problem is they wouldn't be useful as a biomarker because you'd have to take them out and then analyze it. And then you could say, oh, yes, this was from a mouse that was in pain. But of course, you already knew that because you already knew you put the mouse in pain. Biomarkers are only really useful if they tell you right now. And, you know, we don't really have anything like that. The best, the closest we have is imaging. And of course, we can do that in humans as easily in mice, right? So if you put people in scanners, you can, you know, tell by their brain activation that they're in pain. But this is not good enough. It's not selective enough and specific enough to use, for example, in a legal context. But there's a lot of people that think it might get there one day. Well, what about intermittent pain? or something that's triggered. I know you don't want to hurt mice, but if they get like a small shock when something happens, are you able to measure anything immediately after, let's say? Well, I uh, mean- to Determine, okay, what is the acute response to pain? I mean, again, what we usually measure is behavior, right? So if we shock the mouse, we would measure, you know, how much shock it took to get them to vocalize or to get them to jump up or to get them to lick their hind paws. So we have all these behavioral measures. And of course, the behavioral measures in animals are exactly the same as if I ask you how much pain you're in and you say a seven, you know, that's a behavior too. So, you know, the behaviors are easy. The problem is, again, are they selective? Are they specific? Is pain the only thing that could cause that behavior? That's where things start to get tricky. Okay. Uh, what about phantom limb pain? Do you think there's anything there that would be revealing about the nature of pain itself? A phantom limb pain continues to be a really fascinating topic. One thing is this, it's really rather rare compared to other types of pain, so it's not studied very much. But people do find it fascinating, and of course the big issue is always where's the pain coming from, because it feels like it's coming from a point in space where there is no longer a limb. And basically people have been arguing in the field for 20, 30 years about whether the pain now lives right in the brain or whether the pain is actually coming from the stump somehow, but being projected, you know, into where the limb used to be. But to be honest, it's not worked on very much because, it, you know, compared to other types of pain like fibromyalgia or postherpetic neuralgia or painful diabetic neuropathy, phantom limb pain is actually really rare. Can pain happen in the absence of corresponding nerves? Maybe that's a really stupid question. Well, that's it. I mean, that's interesting because um, phantom limb pain is sort of an example of that, right? I mean, the nerves have been cut. If there was an amputation, you know, the nerves just don't get to the brain anymore and they, gen you know, they basically degenerate. And so that's sort of like pain without nerves. There's something called uh, central post-stroke pain. So that is pain that you get after a stroke sometimes and there are no nerves involved there because it's in the brain. There's also a very interesting phenomenon uh, known as the thermal grill. Are you familiar with the thermal grill illusion? No. What's okay. that? So um, they used to have this at the at the Science Center in Toronto when I grew up, and I thought it was pretty fascinating. So uh, it turns out how they do this is they have a series of tubes, plumbing, and they sort of interlace them with each other. So in one tube, they have warm water, and then interlaced, they have a tube that's carrying cool water. 
So if you put your hand around the warm water tube, it feels warm. And if you put your hand around the cool water tube, it feels cool. But if you put your, the palm of your hand over uh, many of the pipes at the same time, it feels painfully cold and no one can stand it for more than a few seconds. So that's a situation where there's pain, but there isn't any nociception because nothing on your hand is being activated by a painful stimulus, right? The cool part isn't painful and the, and the warm part isn't painful. And yet somehow this all integrates in your brain to become pain. So that's sort of fascinating too. So the contrast between the two causes the communication, I guess, uh, up through the nervous system into the brain saying pain. I guess so, but but it doesn't become pain until it gets all the way up and, you know, some sort of computation happens that we don't quite understand. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's the basic mechanism of how pain occurs, you know, uh, mechanistically? If I stub my toe or someone punches me in the arm, how does the pain happen? Has anyone been able to characterize how it happens when there's an acute stressor? Yeah, I mean, I think we know that in, in some detail. So, you know, briefly, um, you have nociceptors. So these are specialized nerve fibers, and they, they're all over your skin and your muscles and your joints and in some of your visceral organs, but not others. And if there's some stimulus that would activate them, so that would be either heat, cold, or, you know, serious mechanical pressure, or certain chemicals, mustard oil, for example. Then these nerves get activated, they fire, they send signals to the spinal cord, onto neurons there, which send signals up to the thalamus, and which then sends signals up to a bunch of places, but including your somatosensory cortex. And if your somatosensory cortex gets activated, then you feel pain. Now, of course, it's a lot more complicated than that, but that's the general route. And, you know, we understand that very well. So, you know, I can explain to you very well why it hurts when, you know, a hammer hits your thumb or if you pick up a coffee cup that's too hot. But what I can't explain is why your back hurts. And of course, that's the clinical problem. And so that's where we are. Acute pain, we understand very well. It's chronic pain that we understand very poorly. But do you think it uses the same signaling mechanism? Is there something that's stuck on an on position, for instance, and, you know, this signal, uh, can it be blocked? I'm sure people looked at that mechanism. Right. So like, presumably that's how it works, but exactly, you know, what is setting the signal to stay in the on position and why it's only happening in some people and not others, you know, the devil's in the details and it is precisely those details that we currently don't understand. Hmm. Okay. Well, very good. Jeff, what's the best way for people to find out more about all your projects and, and check out what your lab is doing? Where can they go? Well, I guess they can go to my website, which is mogulab.ca. So M-O-G-I-L-A-B.ca. And uh, yeah, we keep it uh, pretty updated so they could find out uh, everything there. Okay. Well, very good. Well, it's been a pain-free experience to interview you. It was a pleasure, and thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. It was nice to be here. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.